Our first reading today comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had, he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus' birthplace was humble and plain. We picture cattle in the scene under a quiet, starry sky. All was calm, all was bright. But that night, the most extraordinary event in history occurred. Jesus' mother Mary perhaps knew this best of all. Her little boy would be the Lord and Saviour of the world. Please join us to sing our next carol and marvel at the amazing night Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born that silent and holy night. Our second reading for today continues in Matthew's biography of Jesus' life in chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, or out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Hi everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and let me add my welcome to Kelly's. It's great that you can join us this Christmas. Here at Trinity Church Kernelite Gardens, we've had a great time in recent weeks with our online and in-person carol services. 
where we reflected on how in 2020 we've gained a new appreciation of how just one news bulletin can change our entire experience of life. As we've gathered around TVs and heard of circuit breaker lockdowns that almost immediately change everything. And we looked back at one of the greatest news flashes in history as angels declared good news of great joy to all the people that a saviour had been born in Bethlehem. If you missed it, it's on our website for you to use any time in your celebrations of Christmas with some great carols too. But we left asking the question, how can we be sure that we've not been taken in by misinformation? Is this fake news about Jesus? Because if it's fake news, of course we should dismiss it. But if it's all true, it's the greatest news you could ever hear, bringing great joy. Today I want to take us one step further and put forward just a few of the arguments why I think that rational, intellectually honest people with an appreciation of science and history can, and indeed should, believe in and follow the Jesus of Scriptures. Because I realise stories like we just had read, wise men following a star, bowing down before the child Jesus and presenting him with gifts have been so sanitised and sentimentalised in popular culture and on Christmas cards that we can feel like we're being asked to sign up to believing in a children's story. And if you or someone you love is perhaps considering afresh this year whether there's really something to all this stuff about Jesus, you'd be right to dig a little deeper, to ask good questions, to ask, am I being wise in looking into and choosing to follow Jesus? As a starting point, when it comes to comparing God's wisdom to our own, it's fair to say God's very aware that our world doesn't think much of his wisdom. And in response, God directly challenges our wisdom. As we see here on the passage up on screen, God throws down the gauntlet to challenge us to consider the wisdom of his plans, saying, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God's saying there, I know you think my plan of sending Jesus into the world to die on the cross seems foolish to many. But through it, I'm actually pleased to be saving people, bringing people back into relationship with me for all eternity through the preaching of the good news of Jesus' life, death for our sins and resurrection. That forgiveness is available to all who come and place their trust in him. So let's use today's passage from Matthew to do a little evaluation of God's wisdom versus our own. Now ask yourself the question, how would our world's wisdom go about giving someone great power and influence to shape the world? I recently read Obama's biography of how he became President of the United States. And whatever your political leanings, if you read it, you'll come to appreciate the extraordinary effort it takes to get that job. It's quite mind-blowing. The size of the operation, the fundraising effort for the millions it takes to put in place the infrastructure, the advertising, a rolling campaign crossing the country for almost two years, to execute a great social media campaign, to write and deliver some of the best speeches in recent history. 
That's how our world goes about gaining power and influence. Our wisdom says for a job like that, it's about who you know, where you're educated, and how much power you can amass behind you. Now imagine you're the campaign manager for Jesus, and you want to set your goals for him a little higher, so that 2,000 years from now he'll be the best known name in the world, whole civilizations built on his teaching, billions having made him the absolute centerpiece of their lives. According to our wisdom, God did everything wrong. God chose to bring Jesus into this world by someone who'd be a social outcast in her day, becoming pregnant while not married, who was from somewhere only travellers stopped on the way to somewhere else, the equivalent of being born to a young unmarried girl from Port Wakefield. As Luke tells us in his account of Jesus' life, God sends angels to announce his birth to some shepherds late at night, blue-collar workers equivalent to those working the late shift at Cooper's. Head north to the town of Port Wakefield, and in the shed behind the BP, you'll find a baby who will become the most important person in the world, the most important person the world has ever known. In Matthew's biography of Jesus, it wasn't three well-presented, respected wise men on camels as the Christmas cards who would visit him. Magi weren't kind of wise men as we would think of them. They were certainly smart, but generally known for their knowledge of the dark arts or the occult, medicine sometimes, astrology, dream interpretation. They were foreigners from the east, a place that held so much fear for the Jews because they'd been occupied from forces from there in the past. For us, it'd be kind of an odd mix combining the fear you might have from bikies with the intellectual smarts of philosophers and experts in medicine, and spirituality that kind of wasn't considered safe. Yet they come and bow down to Jesus. There's not a powerful politician, religious person, fine, upstanding member of society in sight. This is not how we'd launch the campaign to change the world. Yet God's wisdom achieves its purposes, and it ridicules the rules we play by. We don't go to the poor for answers. We don't go to the small towns, the homeless, the carpenters, those who get themselves executed. Yet God comes to earth as such a man, and since that day, has continued to change lives, put families back together, create loving communities, break addictive habits, and give genuine hope. His wisdom is better than ours, and it achieves its purposes. A second point to consider, if it's true that God's wisdom and our world's wisdom are going to be so often at odds, then it's unwise just to follow the wisdom of the pack. For years, Bible critics, the intellectual establishment, the philosophers, have written this story off as being far too fanciful a fairy tale. Why would foreign wise men follow a star and come bow down to this kid Jesus? It makes no logical sense. Hence, it can't be true, they say. Yet I want to say, to following blindly the consensus of the day without carefully investigating the facts is not wise. Let me give you a modern day example. Up on screen, this is John Paulson, who up until 2007 was a relatively obscure money manager working in New York. 
I won't bore you with the details that only ex-corporate bankers like me get excited by, but leading up to the global financial crisis of 2007, he effectively bet against the home loan market, against the advice of his finances, his insurance company, and against the widely accepted wisdom of the day that homes never lose value and that it's okay to lend people 100% of the value of their property. When the GFC hit, world banks and governments were largely unprepared, but it was payday for John Paulson. Guess how much he made? $4 billion. Yet when you look back, the signs were all there, the in, an investigation of the facts underpinning home loans. It went, uh, John went from being considered kind of crazy against the intellectual consensus of the day to overnight having delivered what some have termed the greatest financial trade in history. Now, if you were to scan the papers and listen to the news, the philosophers, the social commentators, they'd have you believe that church is dying and will soon be wiped out and only the people holding on are the bunch of dim-witted, easily coerced people. And that it's clear that most of the world has moved on. And as a society, we might hang on to some of Jesus' more popular one-liners. But let's forget the idea that Jesus came to rescue sinners. Yet I want to say, do the historical investigation yourself. Look into the facts. The world in its wisdom doesn't have it right. The facts of history make a very compelling case that Jesus simply is who he says he was. God come to earth as a man who proved it by literally, physically, rising from the dead. Take today's story for Matthew, for example. A little historical investigation will show you that astrology was on the rise at the time. You can find out for yourself that many of the intellectuals of the time were astrologers and that many believed that the birth and death of great kings were marked by unusual events in the sky. Less than 50 years before Jesus' birth, Julius Caesar was assassinated and historians recall that as the Roman Empire marked his death, a large comet appeared for some time. And it did wonders for the astrology business. See, we told you this happens at the birth and death of great kings, they said. And you can see Roman coins minted by Caesar's great nephew Augustus showing the comet on the coin as a type of propaganda to support his reign as Caesar. We also know the rumour mill was in overdrive that a strong king was going to come from Judea and that a number of astrological events uh, happened around the time in question. It makes total sense then that astrologers seeing something unusual in the sky would think a king must have been born. I've heard the rumours. Let's head to the capital city of Judea, Jerusalem. Historical investigation shows you that we don't have to believe in fairy tales such as such a visit by astrologers makes total sense. And why God in his wisdom might use a star to get the attention of the Magi and why Matthew would think that it's a persuasive thing to include in his account of Jesus' life. It's the great biblical claim that and that of Jesus himself, that he will return. And on that day, those thought foolish enough to follow him now will be considered wise, as wise as John Paulson. As people who looked beneath the intellectual rhetoric, the philosophers of our age, and considered Jesus for who he is, what he claimed, and the proofs he offered to those who choose to follow him. And one final contrast between our wisdom and God's. Our wisdom is narrow and exclusive. 
God's is for all. So much of the world's wisdom is reserved for people like us who are lucky enough to be born in a great country like Australia with good governance and great health care. And it's our world's wisdom that our society's greatest fruits are reserved for the most educated, the best connected, the gifted sportsmen, and the really, really good looking. God's wisdom is for all people, from the African plains to the masses of India and Southeast Asia, because to access God's wisdom, you simply need to get to know and give your life to Jesus. Our world's wisdom tells us that we're free and giving our lives to serve someone is beneath us. There's only two problems with that. Firstly, we're not free. We're not free geographically. We've woken up to that this year. What the world's poor already knew, that we can't go and live and travel wherever we want in the world. We're not free financially. We're a wealthy country, to be sure, but we're living on the Australian credit card at the moment, and those still with secure jobs are working some of the longest hours in the West. And as rich and as blessed as we are, we can't live forever. And hasn't COVID brought that home? even to immensely blessed places like Adelaide this year, where a lie from a pizza guy can make me panic by chicken wings and shut down the state. As Bob Dylan, one of the greatest songwriters of a generation, observes, you may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. God's wisdom has us serving Jesus and it frees us from so much of the anxiety of serving our earthly masters. And most importantly, it frees us from serving ourselves. Without Jesus, we pour so much effort into our own self-image. What do I do for a living? Where can I live? What kind of security can I provide for my family? What experiences can I amass to make my life a life worth living that others might envy? Jesus, the wisdom of God in the flesh, says the exact opposite. Firstly, he says, let me serve you. I'll sacrifice my life for yours. Pay the price for your sin so your relationship with God can be restored so that I can give you eternal life, free from the fear of death. And then the path to life that means something isn't pursuing freedom, but is actually found in serving me, learning from me, in relationship together, says Jesus. That idea sounds so strange. And if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, can I challenge you to read an account of his life in the new year and think about where our world's wisdom has brought us in its struggles, its contagions, its brokenness, its bushfires, its trade wars. Because you'll meet Jesus, God's wisdom, someone who healed the sick, fed the hungry, raised the dead, gave his life for others, and even the wind and waves abate him, who taught people to love their enemies, turn the other cheek, do good to those who hate you, love your neighbour as yourself. You'll meet Jesus, who was someone who strong men like Roman centurions had no problem turning to and following. Yet he was also loved by women who felt safe in his presence, valued by him in a way that was and still is extraordinary countercultural. You'll meet a Jesus who you'd have to say ignored about every bit of worldly wisdom we here would give him and displayed God's great love for us in laying down his life, not only for his friends, but also his enemies, to pay the price of the sins of all those who would believe in him, even today.
you'll discover why wise kids, wise teenagers, wise men and wise women still seek him. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm going to hand back to Kelly.